This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us to keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. By midlife, or what we assume is our midlife, even if we've achieved most of our ambitions, many of us hit a point where we wonder what really matters. We feel that we've been missing something important, though it may not be completely clear what that is. Inspired by his own midlife crisis, philosopher Kieran Setia explores the meaning and implications of this phenomenon. Kieran Setia, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you for having me. The topic we're talking about today is the midlife crisis. I think I'm probably in the middle of a midlife crisis, but you better explain what you mean by a midlife crisis. So unlike a lot of familiar cultural ideas, the midlife crisis as a phrase has a definite history and a point of origin. So 1965, psychoanalyst Elliot Jacques published this paper, Death and the Midlife Crisis. And what he found was that his patients seemed to be doing well and flourishing, stable jobs, happy relationships, but had a sense of malaise and futility somehow connected with death, and he wanted to figure out what that was. So it's not that people in midlife have become bitter and twisted because their ambitions have been thwarted in some way? No. The problem he was concerned about is a very much a first world problem. It was people who were doing pretty well and had been quite successful, and yet still somehow felt that their lives were repetitive and futile. And it had something to do with the approach of mortality, that death was closer than it used to be. That's right, yes. Yeah. So that there was this picture of having peaked about halfway through, and the upward slope of life has uh, ended, and now it's the downward slope. And it's not fear of death exactly. It's not that death is imminent, but somehow thinking, I can now measure how much life I have left in terms that mean something to me, like roughly as many decades as I've had, inspires this malaise. In addition to the fact that death is a bit closer now, you said that it was combined with a sense of life being futile in some way. That's right. And that's what I find and found puzzling about the phenomenon and made me think there was a point as a philosopher in working on it, because the sense of futility is very elusive. So it's not that people are doing things that are failing. It's not that they think they're worthless or there's no point doing them. It's not that they think, oh, this is just a means to an end. I'm not really getting anything that matters in itself. So if I think of myself as a candidate for this diagnosis. I think, I'm writing a philosophy paper. I really care about this. I really value it. This is something that really means a lot to me. But then I'll finish it, and then I guess I'll write another one. And then I guess I'll write another one. So what is futile about that? What's missing? Lots of projects don't seem on the face of it futile. If I'm trying to find a cure for cancer, that doesn't seem futile. If I'm trying to solve a mathematical riddle, that doesn't seem futile. On the face of it, those seem like worthwhile things to do. Exactly. So the sense of futility here, if there is one to explicate, isn't the sense that contrasts with being worthwhile. I guess you could have a crisis like Tolstoy's crisis, in which you think nothing is worthwhile, nothing is worth doing, a kind of nihilistic crisis. And philosophers have worried about that kind of problem too. But the puzzling midlife crisis is one in which you think, no, this is all very much worth doing. It's not worthless, but it still seems futile. And that seems like a puzzle that 
philosophical distinctions and clarifications could really be useful in coming to grips with. So what is at the root of this midlife crisis? So my inspiration in trying to solve the midlife crisis is an idea from Arthur Schopenhauer, which I think is not quite right, but is very close to the mark. So Schopenhauer was a German 19th century philosopher, famous for being pessimistic, and famous also for an argument about the futility of desire in general, the hopelessness of desire. And Schopenhauer's problem was really pretty simple. He thought, if you want things, you're in a state of not having what you want. And that is very painful. So maybe you should get rid of that. It would be better not to have desires. But if you don't have desires, you'll be aimless and you'll have nothing to do in this state of terrible boredom. So you're in a dilemma. Either you're totally bored or you have desires and want things and you have to endure the suffering of not having them. It doesn't seem that painful to me to have desires. So I've got a desire to finish this interview, but I'm actually quite enjoying this interview, actually. I'm I'm not in a state of terrible misery about it. But Schopenhauer said that to have desires that aren't yet complete is miserable, but that doesn't relate to my own experience. I'm glad to hear that. Though that is the point on which I think Schopenhauer is not quite right, that having a desire for something is not necessarily terribly painful. The point I think he was getting right or leading us towards is this. If you have a desire for a goal and your life is guided by that, that's what's giving meaning to your life. In a way, by aiming to complete that goal, to finish that project, what you're aiming to do or the effect of your success will be to eliminate that project from your life. It's now done. And thereby to eliminate a source of meaning from your life. So pursuing projects has this paradoxical self-destructive quality whereby the things that are giving purpose to your existence are the very things in pursuing which you're extinguishing and thereby destroying the purpose of your life. So, for example, I have an ambition to interview the 50 greatest philosophers in the world. That's my project. That gives my life meaning. But as soon as I've completed that, my life ceases to have meaning because I've completed it and I need to find another project. That, I think, is is right, and it's actually worse than that, because even before you complete it, as you check off the philosophers, the entire process all along is one of slowly eliminating, one by one, the sources of meaning from your life. So it's not just where you'll end up that seems bad. It seems that what you're doing right now is sort of antagonistic to the desire to have a meaningful life. So in doing the interviews, you're making your life worse. And the idea is that the midlife crisis is a recognition that even if I have these apparently worthwhile projects, once I've completed this project, I just have another project and then another project, and it's just one damned project after another. Exactly. So at least one central form of midlife crisis is the striving type A high achiever who's precisely project-driven and is in pursuing these projects, which seem worthwhile and meaningful, one by one, relentlessly emptying their life of all of its sources of meaning. And in a way, yes, they'll acquire more, they'll come up with new projects. But that doesn't really help the fact that their way of engaging with value in the world is a destructive way of engaging with value in the world. If you're right about the diagnosis of the midlife crisis, is there a solution to it? I think there is a solution. We can start to get a handle on the way out by drawing a distinction among activities in life between the ones that are 
this is terminology adapted from linguists talking about verbs for describing what we do applied to activities themselves. We can distinguish between telic activities, which are ones that have a definite endpoint at which they're aimed, at which they're completed, like walking home or conducting this interview, which is done when the interview's over or when I get home, and atelic activities, which are things you can do but that don't have a terminal endpoint at which they're completed, like chatting to philosophers or doing philosophy or going for a walk. And the problem is arising from being excessively focused on and invested in telic activities. And the solution, I think, is to reorient oneself to become more fully invested in atelic activities. And then you won't have the sense that what you want is at a distance from where you are now. Because one of the features of atelic activities is because they don't have an endpoint that you're aiming at in the future, they're realized in the present as much as they can ever be realized. You're talking to a philosopher, and I'm talking to a philosopher, as much now as we can ever be talking to philosophers. It's not at a distance from where we are right now. And so it won't inspire this sense that in doing that and in valuing that, I'm aiming at some future point in which that activity and its capacity to give meaning to my life will have been extinguished. The idea is that I should not be so project-oriented, I should not be so goal-orientated, I should not judge my life by how many of my goals I tick off. That's exactly right. And that, I think, is one way to see why this might be specially a problem at midlife and how it connects with death. Because it's at midlife that you start to realize that you either have completed or will never complete some of the really big life-defining projects like having kids or getting a job as a philosopher. And in thinking about death, you start to realize that insofar as your activities are telic, there's a certain number that you will get done, and it's going to be more or less, but the activities are numbered. And I, I think in both ways, refocusing on atelic activities can help to avoid the kind of malaise that Elliot Jacques diagnosed in his patients. The project that you're invested in here, if I can call it a project, is intriguing because you're trying to identify a psychological malaise of a kind and to resolve it. So it's sort of philosophy as therapy. That's exactly right. So the picture I have in mind is a kind of cognitive therapy on which certain kinds of negative emotion and affect turn out to involve cognitive errors. But the particular kinds of cognitive errors or omissions that are involved are philosophical ones, are ones that philosophy is well-suited to interpret, understand, and criticize. And so I'm hoping that this kind of project will blur the lines between academic philosophy and the kind of philosophy of life, philosophy as a way of life, that connects with the kind of therapeutic goals that you just described. That leaves an obvious question, which is, does it work? Have you tried this on yourself? Have you tried to become less goal-orientated? And as a result, are you happier now than you were before? Well, it definitely has worked in that it does feel to me to capture part of what my problem is. I definitely think I'm type A, I'm driven, I'm obsessed with projects, and that is and has been causing the kind of midlife crisis that I want to solve. So I think the diagnosis is apt. Have I tried? Yes, I've tried to reorient myself to atelic activities to think whether I finish this paper is not the point. It's just that I'm doing philosophy. 
Unfortunately, just trying or saying that to yourself, at least in my case, does not seem to get you all the way to the reorientation of value that I'm recommending. I'm still trying, and I'll keep trying, but it hasn't worked yet. Kieran Setia, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.